Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Cut the music. What's up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. We're going to do a little opinion scholarship today. We're going to jump back into a little bit of opinion scholarship. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> my opinion uh, about some academic topics and um, my preference, philosophy, religion. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to finish up, we're going to finish up the fragments of the <clears throat> pre-Socratic philosophers that we started talking about with Parmenides uh, a little bit earlier. Same book we were uh, we were talking through translation by Stanley Lombardo I believe was his name, um, and we did Parmenides. Now we're going to do Empedocles, and then I'll wrap us up uh, probably for a little while. I will be um, probably done with the, with the Greeks uh, philosophers for a little while anyway. Um, so if you guys remember why I found this topic particularly fascinating, is because um, I didn't expect to see characters at the um, kind of the beginning of Western philosophy being so heavily influenced by shamanism for the the key figures like Pythagoras and, and uh, Parmenides and some of these people to have been seen as shamans, uh, <laughs> to, to have been understood as shamans in the tradition uh, that we're familiar with from um, Siberian and Native American um, religion. I mean, a, a type of culture and religion that we tend to think of as more primitive. And by that, I mean associated with a time when we lived closer to nature. We lived in a tribal society. We're you know, very close to the rhythms of nature and uh, life and death and the cycles uh, of life and death and of seasons and so forth. And so you, you create a certain type of religious philosophy when you live that way. And we don't, we don't tend to think about Western society having come from that place. But it did. But it did. And, it, and we don't have to go back that far to find it. You know, we go back to four or five hundred BC, even <clears throat> even seven eight hundred BC. We see evidence of that. You know, in the early historical period, and um, just in the shadows of the of the of prehistory of Western prehistory, um, and it, it doesn't get less fascinating. So we talked about Parmenides. He he came first in the grand scheme of things. Now we're going to talk about Empedocles. I'm going to call this episode a fugitive from God. Because that's what Empedocles called himself, a fugitive from God. And I thought that was fucking cool. So that's what we're going to call this one. Uh, without further ado, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the intro, at least bits and pieces of it, that uh, Lombardo gave. And it's not that dissimilar from what we heard about Parmenides. As you can imagine, these two people are very closely related. 
So just to set the stage, Empedocles lived uh, sometime between 490 BC and 439. He's from Sicily or southern Italy, which is the same place that Pythagoras and Parmenides came from. It was called a center of mystic religious activity. Again, just just interesting that that's the case. Uh, <laughs> you know, these, these city-states in ancient Greece, at least some of them, were centers of mystic religious activity. And, and we, we see that with the mystery religions. We see that with, um, uh, with or- Orphism. We see that with, uh, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries. We see that with, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the priestess at Delphi. There's all kinds of, of examples of sort of mystical religious activity. And it, it seems to be coming from Asia into these parts of Europe first. Now, Aristotle, which comes a little while later, um, he compares Empedocles to Homer. And you remember, we saw the same comparison to Homer when we talked about Parmenides. And and the reason is that they were writing in hexameter poems. They were writing in the same type of poetry, um, you know, that that made the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, uh, so treasured. Um, You know, this particular form of poetry, which was related to... um, revelation and mysticism and the muses it was something that was associated with divine inspiration you know when the story when homer tells the story of the iliad or the odyssey um you have to imagine that's something like a revelation that's something like uh what we might think in a christian context you know maybe an an angel comes down and and speaks to you or he shows you a vision or something and and that's what you write down that's what you record you know this is the kind of thing that the iliad and the odyssey were intended to be and it's the same style of writing you get from Parmenides and Empedocles, these poems. And that's interesting. And Aristotle says, yeah, they, they, they have really nothing in common except for their meter, except for how they wrote. And he said, if one is to be called a poet, the other should be called a natural philosopher. Now, Aristotle is one of the first people to talk about natural philosophy, and that's something that becomes science, right? Natural philosophy evolves into modern science. And this is what Aristotle, the great rationalist Greek philosopher, you know, he, Aristotle's different from Plato, different from, you know, many of the these mystical philosophers. He was like the first scientist, the first empiricist, something like that. And he calls Empedocles a natural philosopher. And I find that interesting because Empedocles is talking, and you'll see, talking very mystical, shamanistic type, you know, uh, shit, for lack of a better phrase. And Aristotle calls it natural philosophy. He calls it science. So he sees Empedocles' mysticism as an early form of science. It's, it's an attempt to understand nature or to understand reality. And that is what will become modern science. And I want you to kind of hold that in mind as we, as we read through this and we talk about this. The kind of things Empedocles is going to say, these are revelations, divinely inspired revelations about the nature of reality and, and, and you know, fundamental nature in general. Okay, so apart from Empedocles' philosophy, he's known for the story about how he died. And we did talk about this before, but if you don't remember, Empedocles leaped into an active volcano. Like, I mean, come on. This guy climbs up a mountain, Mount Etna, the volcano, with smoke billowing out it and glowing lava. I just imagine from, it's like something from a cartoon. And he, 
and makes a spectacle out of it. He goes up there and leaps into the volcano. And there's reasons why uh, he did that. And there's kind of two, two sides of the story. But one of them is that he did it to prove his immortality. Because Empedocles, like many mystics, makes a claim that death isn't real. And that he is immortal. Or that immortality is possible. Um, and so perhaps he jumped into this volcano to prove that he was immortal. Like he said he was. Did it work? Well, <clears throat> we're still talking about him 2,400 years after his death, so you tell me. Maybe it did. Maybe it did. All right, lastly, another interesting thing about uh, Empedocles is that, like we were talking about with Pythagoras and Parmenides, we only have fragments. We only have bits and pieces and secondhand accounts of what they said. We don't have, you know, um, a full library or a full book or a full poem even. But with Empedocles, we have 450 lines of his poetry across two poems he wrote, one called On Nature and another one called Purifications. Now, as far as all these fragments go, these pre-Socratic philosophers, we have more from Empedocles than from any other pre-Socratic philosopher. So we can get a much better idea of what he meant, what he was teaching, than we can really any of the others. Uh, what else does Lombardo tell us? He says that, um, oh, he, 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 he kind of frames this pretty interestingly. He says that Parmenides, remember coming before Empedocles, dismisses all becoming or change as an illusion. So for him, um, for him, the ultimate reality is something unchanging and something uh, e eternal. Um, anything that seems to be otherwise is an illusion. Like we, we exist in an illusion, um, you know, our, our perception of the world, the idea that things are distinct from one another, that there's motion and, and action and interaction and cause and effect, all of that is an illusion to Parmenides. Um, there's another pre-Socratic philosopher in this same wheelhouse named Heraclitus. Now, Heraclitus disavowed any permanence at all except for that of perpetual flux. Heraclitus was the one that says, you never step into the same river twice. Everything is constantly moving, right? He says, that isn't the same river and you aren't the same person the next time you step into that river, right? It, it, it's every event is entirely unique, never to be repeated. Everything is flux. So Parmenides says, there is no change. So the things that we see is changing, transforming time and evolution and, you know, interaction, cause and effect, all that is an illusion. Heraclitus says there is nothing permanent, so exactly opposite of Parmenides. But it's kind of in an interesting way because you could say that Heraclitus's permanence is this thing he's calling perpetual flux. So, so the one is in the many, Change is in the unchanging reality. There's some paradoxical thing here that we have to uh, contend with, and Empedocles had to contend with. And uh, the translator of these fragments, Lombardo, he says that Empedocles had it both ways. He had he, he took Parmenides and he took Heraclitus's perspective, and he found a way to synthesize them. And he goes on. He says to accommodate both, right? The the existence of the uh, um, perpetual flux. Um, and the existence of the, the unchanging one. 
to accommodate both, he devises a cyclical physics. There's four immutable elements, earth, air, water, fire. And they're operated upon by two opposing forces, love and strife, right? Good and evil, right? But these are motivational forces, love and strife. They combined and dispersed to produce in alternating phases the harmonious one and the divergent many. The many return to the one when love becomes the operant force in the universe. Okay, so you've got these four elements, earth, air, water, fire, and they're being constantly moved and transformed and, and, uh, um, and so forth by these two forces, love and strife. So this is the kind of big picture model of Empedocles' philosophy. What is fundamental reality? It's four elements being constantly op- op- acted upon, operated on by these two opposing forces, but these, 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 uh, these opposites, basically. And there's all kinds of things in here that are interesting. This idea that, you know, that the one and the many can transform back and forth into one another, right? The many return to the one when love becomes the operating force. Strife pulls them apart. Love brings them together. And they just mix in different ways, constantly going going apart and back together. You, you have this image of, a, of something like Alfred North Whitehead talked about. You've got this image of, of a process, so fundamental reality as some kind of an interaction, as some kind of a process. Whitehead talks about that being an interaction between experiences, you know, different different actual entities, he calls them. Um, so, you know, we can get into the weeds easy on that topic, so I'm not going to do that. But, um, you know, the, the fundamental reality being something like a, a process. Very interesting. Um, I do have some resistance to this idea that, that, the one and the many are going like reality is shifting back and forth between the one and the many. You get this idea like, um, like the Big Bang uh, model, where um, you know uh, the cosmos emerged from a singularity, from from, a, from some, something that's a oneness, a unity, and explodes. You know, and gets bigger, expands, and then perhaps at some point it reaches critical mass and comes back together. You know, and so you have this. I think I think they call that a open universe, uh, uh, Big Bang model, but it's like uh, the universe is breathing, uh, inhale and exhale. It's co- it's coming back in, into the singularity. It's expanding again in a Big Bang. It's coming back into a singularity. And so it's like all, in alternating phases, it becomes one and many, one and many, that kind of thing. And I like that. But something about my own intuition tells me that they don't, that reality, fundamental reality, the thing I would call God, doesn't alternate between one and many. I don't think that's right. I think it's simultaneously both, always. It is one and many. I don't think it goes back and forth. And I, I do think there's an interaction. I do think that there's a, there is a process. I think that's fundamental to reality. But I'm not sure that I go with Empedocles entirely and with the idea that it, it alternates, right? The one you might call something like God. The many you might you would call something like being or reality. You know, when God, when that singularity becomes the multiplicity of the world. Uh, and I don't think that while the cosmos exists um, in this multiplicity, that God doesn't exist. You know, it's always there behind the scenes. Um, you know, it is the ultimate reality. So, to my mind, I think that. 
the one and the many are a paradox. They're the mythological Ouroboros. They're, they're the idea that we're supposed to struggle with. How can the one be, be the many? How can, it, how can it be possible that something is self-created? You know, that's the religious paradox that we have to contend with. And we can talk about the union of opposites and the symbol of the Ouroboros, this very ancient religious idea, which has its influence here in, in you know, ancient Greek religion and in this mysticism and shamanism of the pre-Socratics in particular. So when he talks about the one and the many and this transformation back and forth, um, I think that symbolic Ouroboros idea is exactly what he's referring to. All right, Lombardo says that Empedocles immersed himself in Pythagoreanism, responding to its doctrine of reincarnation and the ethics attendant upon that doctrine. In his poem, Purifications, we see such esoteric dogmas as the existence of an occult self, right? An occult self is like, um, boy, how do I explain this? The occult self is like, something like the idea of the collective unconscious that Carl Jung talks about. It's like you are your own self, your individual, you know, uh, self, but you also belong to a communal self, you know, a collective consciousness, um, so something like that. It's like imagining yourself as, as both one and as the one, the, the unity, but also one of the many that make up that unity, if that makes sense. So, um, so the occult self, uh, it's immortality and a word, that I'll have to, to probably uh, explain to you, uh, metempsychosis, which just means this is the idea of transmigration, like from, Bo- from Buddhism or Hinduism, transmigration of the souls. This is connected to reincarnation. And the sinfulness of killing or consuming ensouled beings and karmic retribution th- through a, uh, an individual's successive lives. So these people, the Pyth- Pythagoreans, were almost, pro- almost certainly uh, vegetarians, they don't want to kill any animals to live because, because life and spirit is sacred, and they recognize that. Um, and they, they include this kind of in this larger um, philosophy uh, about reincarnation, uh, about um, living multiple lives, about karmic retribution, right? Pur- purifying your soul so that you can move on to whatever is after this stage of, of you know, s- cycles of rebirth. And the reason I tell you all of this is because Empedocles was carrying into the Western tradition ideas that we don't we don't generally believe were at the core at the at the beginning of Western culture. These are these are Eastern ideas. When I talk about karma and and reincarnation and transmigration, when I talk about that. You think of Hinduism, you think of Buddhism. And what I want to suggest here is, just like we talked about with Parmenides, is that this mystical shamanism that you see in these ancient pre-Socratic philosophers um, was a heritage from, from the West's interactions, influence coming from the East. And so the ideas that we just talked about being present in Empedocles' philosophy is, are also present in Hinduism and Buddhism. And so there's some thread that connects them that comes from it comes from an Asiatic shamanistic influence, a very ancient one. All right, then Lombardo leaves us with this, basically. He says, it is the internalization of the poem the trainee must accomplish in order to acquire shamanistic powers. 
It is a meditative process that requires purity and compassion. So what, he, what he's saying is the poem that Empedocles wrote, and there's two of them, and we're going to read through them, um, they're meant to be meditated upon, learned, memorized, meditated upon by a trainee, by somebody trying to reach that, that um, mystical uh, state who wants to have this sort of religious experience for themselves. And a path to that is to, is to imbibe within yourself the revelation that Empedocles brought back from the divine realm. Right? Remember, Parmenides did. what he, he went to the goddess. He received the revelation from the goddess. That's where the philosophy came from. And ex we're going to see exactly the same thing with Empedocles. So really briefly here, I want to start with the poem called Purifications. I'm doing that because I want to show you some of this Asia, the Asian influence here, some of the, the uh, transmigration and uh, uh, karma uh, ideas that you see in the poems. Um, but I'm going to focus mainly on the other poem. It's called On Nature. So before I get there, we're going to read a few from Purifications. Okay, Empedocles says, If a spirit should sin or defile itself in strife, he shall wander 30,000 years, born through time in various mortal forms, and I am one of them, a fugitive from God. I have already been a bush and a bird, a boy and a girl, a mute fish in the sea. Whew, buddy. Love it. Love it. Love it. Okay, so he's talking about this uh, force, one of the two forces that, that moves um, the cosmos, strife. Remember, love and strife. And he says, if a spirit defiles himself with strife, he shall wander 30,000 years, born in time in various mortal forms. So you're being reincarnated. And he says, I am one of those. I am one of those people who failed, who was pulled apart from God through, through, through strife. I allowed that to happen. I am a fugitive from God, which is an interesting thing to say, you know, especially when you're supposed to be a teacher, teaching people how to avoid this problem, how to overcome reincarnation. And he says, I haven't done it yet. I'm a fugitive from God. And then he says, I've already been a bush and a bird and a boy and a girl and a fish. He's already lived multiple lives and been various things. So you see this idea, very Buddhist, very Hindu idea. And then in Purifications, there's another bit where he talks about what the ultimate reality is. And this is great, so I'll just read it to you. The ultimate reality is impossible to bring within our eyes field or for hands to hold. It is not endowed with a human body. It is one awesome mind, inexpressibly alone, riddling the universe with its thoughts. Universal law, a continuum through the ether. Man, oh man. Okay, so I don't know what that makes you think of, but what stands out to me immediately is whatever this ultimate reality is, whatever this thing is that stands above even the gods, it's not anthropomorphic. He says it is not endowed with a human body. Well, that's very different from what we see from the Greeks, right? We see anthropomorphized gods, gods in human form. And he's saying, nope, that's not it. What that is is something, but it's not it. That's not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is one awesome mind riddling the universe with its thoughts. And those thoughts, he says, are universal law, a continuum through the ether. So, so, 
So one awesome mind. You can think about that like a divine mind, the mind of God, for lack of a better phrase. And all things that exist are the thoughts emanating from that mind. And what that mind does is nothing but throw its thoughts out into the abyss. Right? It's just a, a machine-generating being. And it, those thoughts are what we call being. They are a universal law. Right? They're, they're the things that allow matter to exist, very laws of nature and physics. Those are thoughts in the mind of God. And that brings me to the poem I want to focus on, On Nature. And it starts exactly like we saw in Parmenides, as a revelation from a goddess. Empedocles says, Drive me in your chariot as far as is lawful, goddess. So he's pleading for a revelation. Take me as far as, as you're allowed to take me into the divine realm, basically. And you, what, what you want to understand from this is something like an altered state or a revelation. As far, he, he wants to go as far as a mortal is permitted to see into the divine. That's how it begins, right? This isn't philosophy that's coming from deduction and, and you know, logic and, and you know, uh, rationality. It's coming from the opposite. It's coming from the unconscious, from the irrational. It's coming from as a revelation. And he says this, he says, Bodies are tunneled with myopic sense organs. The whole can't be seen, can't be heard, can't be grasped by the human mind. Right. So this ultimate reality, this divine mind spewing thoughts out into, into being, he's saying that can't be heard or understood or, or seen or grasped. Right. And this reminds me of this reminds me of a um, philosopher named Henri Bergson who talked about consciousness being a reducing valve. We've, I've explained this before, but the idea is that uh, ultimate reality, whatever it is, you know, perhaps infinite, it's not something that can be experienced without putting some shackles on. It's like, I can't tell you the number pi with infinite precision because I would be rattling off decimal places forever. Right? It's impossible to wrap your, your mind around pi because you, there's no end to it. There's, you're not stopping the process of, of um, understanding it, the process of uh, encapsulating it into an idea. And so consciousness does something like that. It, it, it puts the clamps down on an infinite reality and makes it something that's experienceable. It makes it something that's finite that we can then have an experience of. And this seems to be what Empedocles is saying when he says that our bodies are tunneled they're tunneled with myopic sense organs. And this is why the whole can't be seen or heard or grasped by the human mind. So the whole is there, but it's not something we have direct access to, at least not in the physical. Then he says this. He says, start using every faculty to see how each thing is clear. You have sight, but don't trust it. So this is interesting, right? He's saying, focus on how every one of your senses leads you to believe that things are distinct and finite. Everything is clear and distinct, separate. 
I'm separate from you. The world is separate from me. You know, this space is separate from outer space is separate from the earth, whatever. Everything is clear and distinct. And he's like, you have sight. You will see. You will experience everything like this, separate, disconnected. He says, don't trust it. So he's speaking to something like illusionism, something like we talked about with Parmenides, the idea that what the world is like, our experience of it isn't identical to what is actually there to be experienced. I look up at the sun, I see a, a, a sphere in the sky glowing with light, and that gives me some general idea of what's up there. But I've never been to the sun's door. I've never knocked on it. I have no idea. I have no idea what the sun is, right? I just have some foggy, you know, abstract model of it that I can barely see in the sky. It's not the real sun. This is the idea that reality is like that. Our experience is some watered-down, you know, finite um, version of some infinite reality um, that's entirely un unavailable to us behind the scenes. The ones and zeros behind the matrix, that's the real thing, the thing in itself. And there's a warning here about that. It's like... You're never going to experience the thing in itself. And when you look around and you see all these finite, you know, the multiplicity of the world, don't trust it. There's something not quite true about it. And then he says this. He says the first thing you have to learn. He says learn first the four roots of all that is. And then he gives us these four roots. Zeus, a white flickering. Life-breathing Hera. Adonis, unseen, and Nestus, whose tears form mortality's pool, uncreated. Whew, buddy. Four roots of all that is are Zeus, Hera, Adonis, which is actually Hades, the god of the underworld, and Nestus, which is another name for Persephone, who is Hades' wife. These are the four elements that are the roots of all things, Zeus, Hera, Hades, Persephone. And then he calls them uncreated. So if you don't know the story of Persephone, I'll just tell you, she kind of gets tricked into marrying Hades. Um, Persephone is the daughter of Demeter. Um, she's a, you know, a very important, powerful goddess. Uh, she gets tricked into marrying Hades and has to spend half of her time in the underworld. And she's allowed to come back um, to the land of, of the divine, but she, every year she has to go back for a period of time into the land of Hades. And this is responsible for um, for the winter, for the seasons, that kind of thing. This is the story. So I, I guess what I want to say here is if I'm trying to understand what this means, how can Zeus, Hera, Hades, and Persephone be the four roots of all that is? I guess what I see here is two consort pairs. I see two pairs of opposites, and this goes back to the imagery of the many and the one, the Ouroboric sort of imagery we talked about. Um, Zeus and Hera are husband and wife, you know, masculine and feminine, um, the great god, the great goddess. And Hades and Persephone are, again, husband and wife, uh, opposites, ma male and female, that sort of thing. Um, Hades is, is associated with the underworld and death, Persephone is associated with life. You can see the opposites here. And so what, what you seem to have here is the union of opposites, the same thing we see symbolized in the Ouroboros. 
We have Zeus and Hera, the, the great god and goddess, but they're consorts, they're husband and wife, they're one thing, right? The, the opposites in union. Same thing with Hades and Persephone. So there's something like that. The tension between opposites, the union of opposites, being the creative force in the universe, being the symbol of the creative force in the universe. Okay, he says, there is no finality in death. There is only merging, change and exchange of things that have merged. Only fools believe that unbeing can come into being or that anything that is can pass into nothingness. All right, so there is no finality in death. There's only merging and changing. So you have something here like the idea of conservation of energy uh, that we, we get from Isaac Newton. Um, we, we have a uh, cyclical process of changing back and forth, right? The one changing into the many, the many into the one, all these various elements changing into one another through the forces of strife and through the forces of love. And so you have this idea of... Um, fundamental reality being eternal, uncreated, and completely um, undestroyable, right? He says only fools believe that unbeing can come into being. What does that mean? That means being is eternal. It didn't, it didn't just come in. It wasn't created. It always is. It is the thing that always is. And it can't pass away either because it always is. So the thing that always is transforming, you know, within itself. And this image, I cannot help but suggest, reminds me of Alfred North Whitehead's process philosophy. His process philosophy was an idea of experiences within experiences within experiences, creating this sort of network of experiences and this infinity of interactions and possibility that churns out novelty. This is the image I'm getting, this self-contained, self-created, you know, um, thing that is uh, eternal and eternally changing. It's got that flux, that transformation that Heraclitus brings in. It's got the oneness of Parmenides. This is the synthesis that Empedocles brings to the table. He says, at times the solitary one grows out of the many. At times the many out of the one. Separation engenders union through love. The one born out of the many. The many separating out from the one. Their interchange is a ceaseless round. And then he says, the elements predominate in the turning of time. Nothing besides comes into being or ends. Where would they go if destroyed, since nothing is empty of them? No, they are all that there is. In their interpenetration, becoming different things at different times, but always themselves, a continuum forever. All right, so whether we're talking about the many and the one, or these elements that, that he's referring to, which I assume goes back to those four elements, you know, Zeus and Hera, um, Hades and Persephone, that make up everything, and their interaction and interpenetration and transformation. And that is a continuum forever. That is being, existence. He says, observe all the beings that stream from earth split by wrath into divergent forms and coming together in love. Here is the origin of what was, is, and will be 
the budding of trees, of men and women, beasts and birds, and the gods who live for eons and glory. Don't let it escape you. Mortal beings have no different a source. Okay. So, so here you see the idea of wrath splitting things into divergent forms. So wrath pulls the oneness apart, creates the multiplicity of the world, and then those things, right, the existing things in the world, come together in love. And you can see that in, you know, molecular bonds. You can see that in chemical interactions. You can see that in, you know, relationships between human beings, that love brings things together, right? Or, or you know, the, the possibility for interaction, the possibility for some sort of union, that brings people together. And it brings molecules together, and it brings atoms together, and it brings planets together, you know, that kind of thing. And he says, that is the origin of what was, is, and will be. The origin of budding trees, of men, women, beasts, and birds, of the gods. So this separation of the oneness into multiplicity through one of these driving forces, the force of separation he's calling wrath. That is the origin of all things. Not just material beings like trees and men and beasts and birds, but all the gods who live, who live for eons and glory. Even the gods are created through the separation of the oneness. And then he says something interesting. He says, don't let it escape you. Like This is important. Write this down. Don't let it escape you that mortal beings have no different a source. So we come from the same oneness that gave us the gods and the cosmos. We have the same source. What does that mean? Now I have to say there's a, there's a line from Hesiod, um, and like Homer, Hesiod was one of those people writing in this, this sort of same style. Um, and Hesiod said, how the gods and mortal men sprang from one source. That that's a quote, I believe, from his Theogony. So Hesiod, too, talks about the gods and mortal men having a common source. And that's interesting for, for a polytheistic culture where, where Zeus or Kronos or something is the, is the high god, uh, the king that was responsible for being and everything else and all the other gods. But behind even them, there's some common source. Right? The, the same thing that gave us the gods that, and also gave us the cosmos and, and man, that all filters back to something behind the scenes, behind even the gods. That's interesting. Again, it reminds me of that process theology of Whitehead. It reminds me of, uh, of the Tao from, from Chinese Taoism. It's the interaction of cosmic forces or opposites as the creative force in nature and the origin of all things. All right, he says, In love all things came to be one. A stream of perfect love flowed into the sphere, and all was transformed. What had learned immortality now became mortal. The pure become mixed. All right, so wrath pulls us apart. Love brings us together. And he talks about love flowing into the sphere. And I, the sphere is supposed to represent a fundamental reality. The sphere is supposed to represent, you know, eternity. It has no beginning and end. It's self-created. That's the Ouroboric sphere, the, the circle. So that's what he's talking about here. But I can't help but think of a myth 
from the East, um, from Zoroastrianism, that talks about in the beginning, when the cosmos is created, the force of good, Ahura Mazda, the great god, and the force of evil, Ahriman, the devil, um, flood into uh, what, what is created. They, f- they flow into it. Ahriman trying to defile and destroy it, and God trying to preserve it, protect it. And that's sort of the same imagery we see here. And I just point that out mainly because, because we know that th- this came from sort of Asian influence. And you can see the same, perhaps, the same um, influence in Zoroastrianism from, from ancient Persia. Then what he says, what had learned immortality now become mortal, the pure become mixed, I find to be really interesting because what had learned immortality, this is supposed to be an idea of uh, the oneness, the, the eternal thing, the, the divine thing at the beginning, the thing I would call God. And Empedocles would say, is the, the, the force, the power, the origin behind the gods, that thing had to be, now become mortal. Right, uh, you get this idea of an incarnation. You, you think about, you know, Jesus, something like that, an incarnation, God becoming man, and then he says the pure become mixed. This is this is mind or or psyche or spirit and matter becoming mixed. This is the idea from Genesis where God breathes His Spirit into the form of the material form of Adam to bring it to life. Mind and matter become mixed. And that's what we call being. That's what we understand ourselves to be and perhaps all of the cosmos to be. He says, As the two gods mingle with each other, continuous production of life forms began. Human grafted on bovine, bovine on human, and where shadowed limbs meet, androgynous forms emerge and multiply. Okay. That's, that's a trippy one, and I, inclu- I included it because it, specifically because it's a trippy one. So when he says, um, as the two gods mingled with each, uh, with each other, continuous production of life began, those two gods he's talking about are these two opposing forces, life and, or excuse me, strife and love. That's the Ouroboric opposites, strife and love mixed together, um, you know, peak, um, creating the multiplicity of the world, the oneness the opposites in union, the oneness becoming the many. But then he says something weird. Human grafted on bovine, bovine on human, and where shadowed limbs meet, androgynous forms emerge and multiply. What? What? Okay, so human grafted on bovine, that's a that's a, a cow, right, bovine? So you've got these uh, description of what seems to be therianthropes, half half human, half cow uh, creatures and androgynous forms, right? With both sexes. Like, what is that? First of all, that's a very strange thing that you might see in a um, psychedelic or mystical vision or revelation. Uh, we see therianthrop images all throughout ancient religion. We see them in the, in the cave paintings from the Neolithic. We see them in uh, the gods of Egypt. We see them, you know, in the, the god Ganesha from Hinduism. Half animal, half human creatures. Um, in, in Greek uh, religion, we see the goddess Nike with wings. We see minotaurs and centaurs and the god Pan with cloven hooves. We see this all the time. So we have a union of opposites in a way. 
of man and of animal. And then the androgynous forms are also a union of opposites, aren't they? A union of masculine and feminine, male and female. So this is, this is a way of describing what, what it opens with. The two gods mingled with each other, love and strife, the union of opposites. And the imagery that, that is associated with are these interesting therianthrope, you know, androgynous images that we see in our most ancient religious traditions. And we wonder what they mean. You know, you look at the ancient cave paintings in Lascaux in France and Altamira in Spain and places like that. And you see the birdman, you see the shaman with antlers, you see the 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 um, uh, the lion man, you know, with with a lion's head and a man's body. What does that mean? How do we don't know? We can't possibly know what thirty thousand years ago these people intended when they carved these strange images in the caves or painted them. But perhaps we can. Perhaps it's something like this. Perhaps it's an it's an illustration of the coming together of opposites, of the union of opposites and the creative force that we call God. And then he says, press these things into the pit of your stomach as you meditate with pure and compassionate mind. and They will be with you the rest of your life. And from them much more, for they grow of themselves into the essence of each person's being. Right, so that's what you're being asked to do. If you're a student and you're following um, Empedocles, you want to take this information from the poem, you want to put it in the pit of your stomach and meditate on it with compassion until it becomes a part of you. And then he leaves us with just two other thoughts. All things have intelligence and share of thought. Remember, thought is everything from the mind of God. And he said... All things have intelligence and share of thought. We share, we participate in whatever the divine being is, whatever, whatever God is. We participate in it through our intelligence, our consciousness, through our thoughts. That's, that reminds me of the biblical phrase being made in the image of God. If God is the cosmic mind and thought forms are, are all the things that exist, you and I included, and we also are thinking beings, we have this fractal picture. We are thought you know, an embodiment of thought who's able to think ourselves. We're able to do the thing that God did that made us. We're connected through consciousness and thought. And he says, and you will bring back from Hades a dead man's strength. And you will bring back from Hades a dead man's strength. That implies that a mystical experience is something like a death and rebirth. That you're going to go to the underworld like Persephone and you're going to come back. And what you can bring back from the unconscious, from the land of the gods, from this divine realm where he's speaking to the goddess and getting this revelation, is a dead man's strength. There's some treasure there, some, some treasure lost that you can bring back to the world of the living. And that's the hero story in a nutshell. And that brings me to my conclusion. I want to focus on Empedocles' description of fundamental reality. The thing that I, I would just call God. So it goes like this. Empedocles tells us that the revelation in his poem is the key to our own immortality. It is something that should be meditated upon until it becomes a part of ourselves, a path to our own enlightenment. 
So what do his poems teach? First, we're told we must learn the four roots of all that is. And this relates to what the translator Lombardo calls earth, air, water, and fire. A view of the cosmos um, as composed of four fundamental elements or forces. While this isn't particularly strange, and we see the same in many of the Greek philosophers, uh, Democritus as an example, um, he's credited with atomic theory, and, and that gets picked up by John Dalton in the modern period, and that, that's where we get atomic theory, modern atomic theory from. It goes all the way back to Democritus, everything made of irreducible atoms. Okay, But Empedocles doesn't actually name elements, does he? He doesn't say earth, air, water, fire. What he actually says is the four roots of all that is are Zeus, a white flickering, life-breathing Hera, Adonis, unseen, and Nestus. These aren't elements, they're gods. Perhaps Empedocles didn't see a distinction. But what could that mean? Well, we can see in this description two pairs of opposites, much like the forces of love and strife that he sees as the dynamic animating force in the world. Zeus and Hera are consorts, a divine pair, husband and wife, as are Hades and Persephone. Zeus is the father of the gods, Hera the great mother goddess. Zeus is called a white flickering, what a strange thing to say. But perhaps flickering is as good a description of pairs of opposites as any. Flickering denotes light and darkness transforming back and forth into one another. An exact parallel to Empedocles' model of the one and many forever transforming out of and into the other. Hera, she's called life-breathing, this is appropriate for the life-giving mother goddess. She seems to represent the psyche or animating spirit that incarnates in material forms, bringing them to life. This force of life, of course, rests upon, uh, excuse me, rests opposite Hades, the god of death, and the underworld, who comes next. Hades is called the unseen. He represents the other side of reality the side beyond matter and consciousness, the underworld, the unconscious. And he's partnered with Persephone, daughter of the fertility goddess Demeter. So Persephone is the heir to the force of life and fertility, married or joined to the heir of death. She was stolen from the realm of the gods and forced to spend part of her life in the underworld. As such, she represents the union of opposites, of life and death, of consciousness and unconsciousness. So what are these elements then? What is the root of all that is? Zeus is the power that rules over all the gods by keeping them subordinated beneath him. He is the subject, the ego, consciousness itself. Hera is the animating spirit of life. Hades, the unconscious foundation from which consciousness can be born. And Persephone is the unifying spirit 
which takes consciousness and unconsciousness, life and death, into herself. These elements are complementary opposites. Life that turns into death and back again. Consciousness that transforms into unconsciousness and back again. They are the flickering, life-giving, unseen thing, which, as Empedocles says, form mortality's pool. They are dynamics itself, transformation itself, the force within the cosmos which moves it from within, pushing it ever onward. They are simultaneously the soul of the cosmos, of reality. This is a strange conception for the ancient Greeks. Probably for you too. It is an idea of God as a kind of divine process rather than a being or entity. It is the one behind the many powers described in the Greek pantheon. The God behind the gods. Empedocles says, the whole can't be seen, can't be heard, can't be grasped by the human mind. It is not endowed with a human body. It is one awesome mind, inexpressibly alone and riddling the universe with its thoughts. So, like Plato's idea of nous, Jung's idea of the collective unconscious, or Whitehead's idea of organism, Empedocles gives us a reality composed of nothing but thoughts flowing from the one divine mind. He gives us a strange kind of monotheism where the pantheon, the many, are understood paradoxically to be one. And if you wonder where your place in this oneness is, whether your existence is significant or just one in an interchangeable series of divine thought forms, remember what Empedocles insisted, that we find our origin in the same process that gave birth to the cosmos and to the gods. He said, we have no different source. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.